You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. If you have your Bible with you, we're continuing in the, um, our series through Exodus, and today we're finishing up chapter 2, uh, just with reading a few short verses here, but just because they're short doesn't mean that um, there's not great things we can learn from it here. Uh, Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23, and so let's approach God's Word with a readiness to hear and understand what he wants to tell us today. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is God's word. So here we are, and prior to this passage, if you don't have any information or if you had no understanding of the Exodus story or even uh, anything else in the Bible, you would think at this point that God has abandoned his people, that he has given up on them. Life is hard for the people of God. They are experiencing intense oppression and slavery in Egypt. Moses, they're only really... Hope of rescue has committed murder and he's fled the region. He is now in exile and he'll spend 40 years away. And so things seem to go from, from very bad to much worse. However, this short passage seems to lift the corner of that very dark curtain to show us that there's something else going on, that there's another story going on, that God is moving, that he is not out of sight, and he knows the suffering of his people, and he is getting ready to act. It is the darkest before the dawn, and the God's people are, are in a very dark, dark season in their life. You know, every day of the year, you can just look on the Weather Channel app, and you can see when the sun rises. You can get it right down to the second when the sun will break that horizon. You know when the light is coming, when the dawn is coming to break the darkness and to bring the light. But relief in the, in the midst of difficulty and uncertainty, and unfortunately in our life, is, is not as predictable. It's not this way for the Christian life. At times a sense of separation from God and his blessings is very real. And it feels like God has abandoned us and his blessings are far from us. You may have come to church this morning with a deep sense of God's peace in your life and confidence in what he's doing in your life. And I rejoice with you in that. But I also know that those experiences are not constant. They don't stay constant in in the life of a Christian. And sometimes, maybe even most of the times, you sense not his constant care and his love for you and his provision for you, but you sense that he has maybe just neglected you and he's maybe distant from you, that he's not acting quick enough, like he seemed to abandon his people a long time ago in the desert in the midst of their suffering. And we're not given this app that we can look at and say, when does the peace come? When does that sun rise? When does my suffering 
get easier. We're not, we're not given an almanac where we can see how God works and when he works and when he will work in our life. We're not given a timeline for the answers to our, our deepest longings and most painful prayers. But what we are given in this short passage, we're given this six-lane highway of communication to God. That there is an effective way to call upon God that mobilizes him to help. We see God's people moving towards him in prayer. And we see God's people moving towards, or we see God moving towards his people. And so this simple outline for this very short passage is like this. Answering the couple questions. First, what drives us to God? What is it that drives us into the care of God? And secondly, What drives God to us? What mobilizes him to move towards us? And what motivates him to move towards us? First, let's look at what drives us to God. Now, I thought about this comment for a good and long time that I just made because it seems like a kind of way of manipulating good things from God. I said there's an effective way of calling upon God so he can act on our behalf. I said there's an effective way to mobilize him to respond to our needs. Like like there's a trick to get God to listen or to act favorably towards us. There's some kind of skill or technique, but, but what this truly means couldn't be further from the truth. God can't be manipulated. God is not tricked. But what we do see is that when Moses takes things in his own hands, it ends in failure. But when God's people cry out to him, it appears that God is mobilized to act. The people finally get to this place, driven to a point of need. They cry out, and God responds. You've heard it said, time heals all wounds. It's a common expression in our culture. Time heals all wounds. But my question is, do any of you seriously believe that? Time heals all wounds. In my experience, time just makes wounds get infected. (laughs) Time, the longer you wait to get a, a wound taken care of, the worse it gets. And time proved to be no healer for the people of God. In fact, the longer they waited and the longer they were in suffering, things actually got worse as time went on. Year after year, God's people toiled in the hot desert sun, building monuments to Pharaoh's glory. They must have felt as if they were afflicted by some kind of divine curse that God hated them, had abandoned them, forgotten them. They had nothing. They had no power. They had no property, no earthly dignity. And it's important to point out and to notice in this passage what made all the difference in their lives. What caused the season to turn in their life? It was their crying out to God. It was their prayer. When time brought no relief, when political change brought no improvement to their life, right? This oppressive and wicked king of Egypt had put them in slavery and then he dies. This passage opens up and says, now he dies. And if you just read those first few words and you're like, oh good, things are going to get better. But then you see, oh no, they're getting worse. Time doesn't heal wounds. Political change doesn't bring any new thing to the situation. They prayed. And it was a certain kind of prayer, as you can notice. It was a kind of groaning. 
It was a kind of crying out. These weren't polished words. They weren't carefully articulated petitions to God. These three words used to describe their desperate prayer expressed this intense distress, this bitter grief, this painful agony. Their suffering was so great that all they could do was just cry out for help. They directed their pain to God. Sooner or later, every Christian ends up in this place. And that's part of the truth that we don't want to hear. We don't want that to be part of our Christian journey. But sooner or later, God will drive every single one of us to this point of crying out in desperate need of Him. When all you can do and the only hope that you have is God. For Him to show up, for Him to rescue, for Him to provide some relief. And let me tell you this, all the circumstances that lead you to that place of deep need, it's not a curse, it is a mercy of God, it is a gift from God. It is these circumstances that drive us into the arms of God who knows us and cares for us. You see, we, we see our struggles as blockades between us and God, something that is keeping us from enjoying the life that he has given to us. But they are not blockades, they are, they are doorways. We often see our pain as barriers to the life that God desires for us, but they are vehicles that drive us to him. We see our failures, our insecurities, our weaknesses as as enemies, but they are friends. Why are they these things? Why are they vehicles and friends and doorways that lead us to God? And here is why. Because God loves humility. God loves surrender. God loves to hear the cries of his people come up to him. Effective prayer flourishes in the soil of a true and deep sense of our utter need for God. This is the healthy soil that causes our prayers to grow and become effective. God hates pride. God ignores self-righteousness. God sees through our attempts to make ourselves appear good to Him. When we virtue signal before God, His ears close to our prayers. Do you know what that is? That that phrase has become so popular, it's actually in the dictionary now. Let me read you the definition of what that is, virtue signaling in the dictionary. It is this, listen carefully, the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. That doesn't happen in our generation, does it? Of course it does. It is, that's, that's, what, that's what everyone's doing, it feels like. Here's my position and that's what makes me right. Here is my position and that's what makes me good. Here is what I believe, and that's why I'm better. It is the very same thing the Pharisee did when the Pharisee and the sinner come before God in prayer, and the Pharisee lifts his head up to God to pray and says, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. (laughs) And the sinner comes before God with a downcast mind and says, forgive me, for I am a sinner, and that's all I've got. 
And, the, and God tells us that, that it's the sinner that goes away justified. It's the one that is broken before God and cries out in need. Pride and self-praise and self-righteousness effectively shut the door to God's ears because God gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. God loves humility. What, what is humility? What does it look like to be humble? Humility in itself is nothing but a true knowledge and feeling of oneself as one is. For certainly, anyone who could truly see and feel himself as he is would be truly humble. If we knew who we really were, if we saw ourselves for who we truly are, then we would be truly humble and all we could do is come before God with our need. Think about this. On one hand, who we truly are, on one hand we would recognize that we are wretched sinners in need of God and on the other hand we would see ourselves as the object of God's unending affection and love. And these two things together in true reality and true knowing of who we are would cause us to come before God and say, I, I need you. I'm in desperate need of you. True humility is simply knowing who you truly are. Knowing these things so well will cause us to cry out like we have never cried out before. It will cause us to drive to God in our need. Past year or so has been for me a personal experience of unmatched pain in my life. And it's also been an unmatched journey of being drawn closer to God. Some of you have had a year just like that as well. Some of you have had seasons like that. And frankly, to put it in some of the most theological terms, I'm, I'm really sick of it. I just want to live a life where things just go like averagely well for me. <laughs> right? I, and here's the thing. I will sacrifice a great life for an okay life if it means having a pain-free life. You say, well, no pain, no gain. That's fine. I don't need to gain. Like, I just, that's fine. You could take the gain. Just give me average. That's what I want. I mean it. Anybody else with me? If that offer is on the table, you can have a life free of pain, but you'll never exceed just like normal. Sounds awesome. <laughs> Sounds awesome. But the goal is not a life free of pain. The goal is God. The goal is God himself. And the person who truly has God and truly knows a sense of who they are is in need of nothing else in their world. The person who has God and truly has him has no need for anything else so when all we can do is cry out to God, we are in a good place. When all we can do is be in this place of, but nothing is going well. All that I have, God, is you. That is the perfect place because God is using all of that struggle, all of that pain to drive us to his open arms. What drives us to God? It is this suffering, it is this longing, it is this the reality that we are in desperate need of God in every moment. It is the very things that we are trying to resist in our life. If, if you and I had opportunity to write the story of our lives, none of us would write any suffering in it. 
Don't you agree with that? You would not include a single chapter or page or sentence of trouble in your life if you got to write it. But God knows better, and in his wisdom, he is using this suffering of his people in Egypt to get them to a place where he is dismantling every source of encouragement. He's taking away every source of comfort to where the nothing that they, everything they had was taken and all they had left was him. And they cry out when they had no words left. Romans 8, 26 says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I want you to think about this beautiful passage here. Some see this as sort, some sort of this supernatural or angelic language that we are given that only the Spirit of God can discern and decipher, but that's not what this means. It means that sometimes our weaknesses and our pains are so great that we don't have any coherent words to communicate with God, but God knows. And the Spirit knows our heart. And the Spirit communicates that longing to God, and God hears. He knows our weakness. And when we turn to Him in utter need and have no coherent word or articulate petition, but just help, that is far more than enough. We cry out for help. We come to him. He hears us and responds to our need. And hear this, according to his will, he gives us the very best he has to offer. He fulfills his purposes in us. 19th century pastor E.M. Bounds writes this, Our prayers must have much dust on them before they can have much glory in them. God is in the process of moving towards his people. But here, our, our prayers have to be gritty. They have to be honest. They have to be raw and real and true and authentic. And it, those are not bad things. In fact, it, it, it's, it's that mess of our prayers and that utter dependency on God that seems to mobilize God to act. And we see the glory that God is leading us into to drive us towards him and his peace and to see that light dawn in our darkness. What is it that, that, that changes this chapter in the lives of God's people? It's that dust in their prayers. It's that grit in their prayers. It is the pain and longing that they cry out for help. God is in the process of bringing his people out of darkness and into his light. And their pain is precisely what drives them right into the arms of God. How are you viewing your pain in your life? Is it an obstacle? Is it a barrier? It is, a, is, is it a blockade to God and having that life and experience that you had hoped for as a Christian? Or are you seeing these things as aids not obstacles, but doorways, friends that are, that, that, are, that are not enemies, pain that is a welcomed friend that is driving you to cry out to God. 
This is what drives us to God. But as you see in this passage, there's this mutual movement. We are moving towards God in our suffering, and God is moving towards his people. So what drives God to us? When we pray, God remembers. Do you see that in verse 24? And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, this is strange, isn't it? I mean, let this be strange for just a moment. Does God need to remember that he loves his people? I mean, this is strange. God, they prayed and God remembered. It doesn't offer much confidence in his love for us that he would forget, right? He re- he's represented in such a way in this passage. Like he woke up one morning, the phone rings, the Israelites say, it's pretty miserable down here. Any kind of assistance you can offer would be much appreciated. And it's as if God said, you're still down there? <laughs> Let me tie up some things really quick and and I'll get right on it. I'll send a burning bush. Like, we'll we'll get this all worked out. Obviously, this is not how it happens, but the passage does depict this in such a way that we can comprehend how, how does this work with God. Somehow, and this is what we can know from this passage, we can't know fully the mind and, 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 uh, kind of method of God's wisdom, but here's what we can know. Somehow our prayers, our humble prayers of need and crying out have a key role in causing God to act. While at the same time, God never abandoning his own timeline or his eternal purposes. Now, I don't know how that works together. That's far above my pay grade, And we can't know that, that mind of God of understanding how it works. But somehow, when we cry out to God in complete and utter dependency and need on him, humbling ourselves before him, God acts. And that is never in conflict with his eternal providence and sovereignty. It's never in conflict with his timeline. This is why our passage says that he remembered his covenant with them. When they prayed and cried out, it was then that God remembered. Next passage, we'll even, next week, we'll see that God reiterates this. When he communicates to Moses, he says, I heard their prayers and I remembered and, I, and, I am, and I'm going to act because of their prayers. Remembering means that God is about to take the next step to fulfill what he said he would do. When we see in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, whenever we see that God says he remembers his covenant, we should be expecting something incredible to happen. It is here where God is saying, I promised that I would do something. Now watch what I'm about to do because I'm taking a step towards that promise. I'm taking a step towards fulfilling that promise. And I remember. And thankfully, what he remembers is not all the times we have failed him. What he remembers when we pray to him are not the times that we failed to pray. What he remembers is not the times we failed to trust him. What he remembers is the unbreakable love relationship with his people. When we pray, that's what God remembers. 
It is not our sin, it's not our failure, it's not our faithlessness and our unrighteousness that stirs in God's mind. It is his love for his people. A covenant bond is a bond of love, a promise between God and his people that he will not only save them from the bondage of slavery, but from the bondage of sin wherever it is found. God made a promise with Eve in the garden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and all of the world became cursed and broken and, and, and in bondage to sin. God came in and made a promise and said, I will fix what you have broken. I will bring rescue to this world that is now cursed and it will come through your offspring, Eve. It will come through your family. You will bear a child and, and this promise will come through this child. I will fix what you have broken. And then God renewed this promise with Abraham. When all was bad and people did not consider God, he chose this one man, Abraham, and he said, I haven't forgotten my promise. I remember it, and I will continue to affirm this. And then he made this promise with Abraham's son, Isaac, and then with Isaac's son, Jacob. And so when we read the Bible you will notice that it's not merely just a book of morals. It's not just a book of, of disconnected stories of all these epic things that happened a long time ago. But they are several stories meant to point to one specific story. And it's the story about how God is going about fulfilling his promise that he has made to his people. And the more the story goes, the more clear it becomes for how God will rescue us from the bondage of sin. And whenever you see God remembering his covenant promise, that's a clue that he is moving the story forward. And he is moving the story forward again. It is so important to know the story of Exodus. For today, it's not just, hey guys, let's read this story because there's some pretty amazing things that happened a long time ago. The story of Exodus is a foundational model of salvation and deliverance from the power of sin and suffering and all manner of slavery that we experience. It's not just a story about how God saved a particular people a long time ago, but about how God brings about his promised salvation and rescue to all people. I remind you again that the Exodus salvation story is only a foundation of a broader salvation, the better salvation that Jesus came to secure, where God sends a human rescuer into Egypt to save God's people from human slavery. God sends his son Jesus into the world to rescue his people from a greater kind of slavery. If we belong to Jesus, then we are part of this promise. We are part of this covenant. If we belong to Jesus and trust in him, then we are part of the promise that was made to Eve the promise that was made to Noah, the promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise that was made to later David, King David, the promise that was made to us is that God will remember us, that he will rescue us, that he will save us. Our salvation beginning to end depends not on fulfilling our promises to God, but God fulfilling his promises to us. On what do you rest your hope and security in life? Is it that you will be a good person, that you will have good character, that you will have a good record? Is it that you will have more good than bad in your life? 
if you rest on that, then you will find yourself always coming up short and growing in despair, knowing that you can do not enough that God requires. But our salvation depends on God fulfilling his promises to us. You know, tomorrow you and I will wake up. Once again, we will wake up with a desire to be faithful to God. And once again, in some way, we will prove inconsistent. We will prove faithless and weak. But God will not fail. He will see us. He will remember us. He will fulfill in us what he's promised. and, And that is to meet us with his convicting love his forgiving grace, and his renewing power. And God will hear our cries and he will respond to our pain. And here are the ways that God responds in two major categories in all of our cries to God. This is what he does for his people. The first thing, one of two ways. The first thing that God does in response to our prayers, he gives us in great abundance all that we ask for. Or, and you're like, no, or, one's good. Let's just, one's good. I like that. Let's take that and just go with our life. But there is an or. He gives us in abundance all that we ask for, or he gives us the strength to endure without those things. God knows how to accomplish the purposes of his will. He knows how to take care of us. And sometimes he blesses us in abundance for the things we want. But sometimes he gives us the strength to endure without those things we ask for. And that is what makes this life painful. But he hears our cries. He remembers his promise. And he knows us. Exodus 2 ends by saying that God knew the Israelites. Another peculiar phrase here, right? He knew them. Of course he knew them. He created them. He sent them. He he made promises to them. To know is, of course, this kind of knowing facts about their struggle, but it goes far beyond that. Knowing someone implies actively entering into this intimate relationship with them. There are different words that are used in the Hebrew Bible for the word know, and this one is specific. It is the Hebrew word yada. It is the same word as in Genesis 4 when Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. It's that Hebrew word yada as as in Adam and Eve met, yada yada, nine months later they had a baby. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. This is what's happening. There there was this connection that they had that was so intimate, so meaningful, so connected. This all of life, purest kind of intimacy. And Adam and Eve are the only humans that have ever experienced it to this degree as they were without sin at the time. It is to know someone so intimately. It's why God always, his word and wisdom always pairs together sexual intimacy with all of life intimacy. To be bound to somebody physically, we ought to be bound to them completely. To be brought together in a physical sense without being brought together in every other way is a distortion of God's heart and character. And Adam and Eve had that. 
And what resulted was a, a fruitful marriage that resulted in a child. They, they experienced the deepest personal intimacy and mutual knowledge that two human beings could ever experience. And no one has experienced such a connection since then. Sin against God and rebellion has distorted that connection. But God then looks into his people and says, I know you that way. It's not, this, it's not weird. It's not, it's, it's not sexual, of course. It is this kind of, it is this kind of knowing where he knows you more than any human being will ever know you. He knows you more than you know yourself. God knows what you are feeling right now in this very moment. More closely than you do. More so than any other person can ever know you. Do you believe that? That he is so intimately aware of your struggle and your fears and your pains. If you did, you would not stop crying out. If you knew how much God loves you and how you are the, the object of his unending affection and love, and you knew that he knows your pain more than you know yourself, you would be driven to his arms in prayer. He understands you more than the best pastor, the closest friend, or the most compassionate and skilled counselor. He sees into your soul and into your heart. He understands your pain, not from a distance, but God became us. Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, the, the, the visible expression of the invisible God, he puts him, himself in our shoes. He walks our life. He becomes human and knows what it's life, like to live a life of pain and rejection and disappointment. He knows what it's like to be oppressed and to be enslaved and to be killed. He knows what it's like to be mocked, beaten. He knows what it's like to be disappointed. The God who knows the struggle of this life this much and still becomes the one who becomes like us to save us, this is a God worth praying to. This is a God worth moving towards and this is a God worth giving our entire life to. Because when we have God, we are in need of nothing else. 